the son of two immigrants, Sergio Troncoso grew up in a colonia, an informal neighborhood of El Paso. Since then, he's gone on to write five books and win a Fulbright. And he now teaches at the Yale Writers Conference. Every summer, he visits Kansas City to teach creative writing at the George Caleb Bingham Academy for the Arts. We'll talk with Sergio about the influence of teachers, the value of community, and the importance of giving back. And Sergio Troncoso, welcome. So good to have you here. Thank you, Steve. I love coming to Independence. It's one of my favorite places to come every year. That's great. And joining him is Ashton Harris. He's a high school student currently attending the Bingham Academy out in Independence. And Ashton, nice to have you too. Welcome to Up to Date. Thank you for having me, sir. Well, Sergio, you teach uh, at the Academy as a favor to an old teacher. Who is the teacher and what influence did they have in your education? Well, it was Ron Clemens and his wife, Molly Clemens, is now the director of the program. So I know both of them very well. But I met Mr. Clemens uh, back in New Jersey when he was running a program called the Blair Summer School for Journalism as a high school student from El Paso, from very very much of a poor background. I won a scholarship from Gannett to to spend summers uh, in in New Jersey uh, learning to write, become a better newspaper writer. And Mr. Clemens, through another teacher, Pearl Crouch, got me into the program and um, it lit went, you up. Yeah, and he was great. You know, he I, that's how I got to know him originally. And then when I became a writer, he invited me to the program here. Yeah. You know, you've spoken in past interviews about returning to your, your community of Isleta and speaking at El Paso high schools to share what you've learned. Why is it important for you to pay it forward like this ultimately? Because I was that poor kid on the Mexican border once. And I was this fat kid who loved to read. And there are other kids like that right now on the border. My, my brother is the high school principal on the border, and I have another brother who's a high school English teacher. So I go back home to El Paso every year, several times a year. And it's important for me to spread this love of reading, of literature, of writing to, to these kids who yeah. sometimes often are not exposed to that and to tell their stories because too often what they're reading in the high school has very little relevance to, you know, to their lives. And how do you change that? Well, you change it one book at a time. Mm-hmm. I think you change it by talking to people like the Texas Library Association. You change it by writing a good story that wins national prizes, that suddenly opens a door and, and the book gets into libraries. And, um, you know, I've been an evangelist for, for encouraging reading, certainly not just along the border, but to any community that comes from uh, an impoverished uh, status uh, that perhaps might get overlooked by, by people. Now, let's talk about the Academy itself. I'm curious about it. Ashton, tell us about the program and, and how it's helping you as a, as a burgeoning writer. Uh, well, it um, really it's saved my writing. Um, before I came to uh, GCB, it, um, I was uh, writing on my own, and I'd never really gotten much feedback from anyone. And um, GCB is a they give you prompts that you can work with, and you can tinker with ideas. GCB, George Caleb Bingham yeah. Academy. Sorry, that's how yeah. I refer to Your it. Your cool yeah. Sol- yeah. Uh, colloquial yeah. phrase there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Um, and um, it's a great chance to uh, sit down and make friends, and you get feedback from your friends and from the teachers as well. And there's no other program like it because um, in public schools you don't get that kind of attention. I mean, it's four hours every day during the week with not only your friends who can – 
critique your writing as well, but to teachers as well. well what year in high school are you? Uh, I just graduated last May, sir. Yeah, why writing? I mean, why are you so hooked? Um, sounds like you are. Yes, I am absolutely hooked on writing. I've loved books since I was 10. Uh, started with Harry Potter, and it's That'll never do stopped. It. Oh, yeah, Harry yeah. Potter. Um, I wonder how many kids across the country were hooked onto reading or writing by those books. Oh, yeah, I, can, I can't even imagine how many. But, mm. um, yeah, and it's just it's something fun. It's therapeutic, and um, you can change lives with writing, I think. How do you want to change lives with your writing? What do you want to do? Uh, I just really want to give hope to people around the world that there is a better way to live, um, you know, together. Um, There's a lot of strife out there and there's a lot of war and anguish. And I just want to spread peace, really, uh, Mm -hmm. to kids that let them know that there is someone out there that cares for you and that there is someone out there that loves you. And you might not see it right now, but I just want to spread that belief that someone does care about you. You live in independence? Yes, sir. And what kind of backdrop does that provide you as a, as a young man who wants to be a writer someday? How, how rich how rich of uh, uh, material is that for you going forward? Uh, well, I grew up, uh, I'm 18, almost 19. I grew up my first 17 years in Belton, Missouri, and that mm. was a very rich environment as well. Um, rich being one way to put it. Not, <laughs> yeah. Um, Maybe not literally in some ways. Well, yeah. no, no, not at all. Um, yeah. And it was uh, just, it's very interesting to look at uh, people around you as characters because, I mean, if you think about it, I mean, you yourself are a character in your own story and you might be someone else's antagonist or their helping, helping character or um, that one person that they meet you once in their life and you could through some small act, you change their life forever. Yeah. And just that thought right there kind of sparked my idea that, I mean, if I can touch someone's life in some small way and change someone's life forever, I mean, imagine what I could do if I wrote a book, you know? Sergio, you got a winner here, it sounds like. He's, you know, Ashton is a great student. Yeah. And I love teaching kids like him here in Independence, you know, because they're so focused and we work on everything from line editing. So um, we literally go through line by line, picking out words that are not necessary, for example, taking them out. So it's very much of a, you know, person to person, line by line, edit and, and instruction. And I believe, you know, I'm certainly Aristotelian. I, I believe you learn by doing. Mm-hmm. You know, if you want to be an editor, you have to begin yeah. with editing your own with work. That. Yeah, so. I, I teach writing at UMKC, and I also have been a journalist for 30 years, and I know exactly what you're talking about, going through things line by line, picking out the extra words and getting rid of them, you exactly. know. Yeah, they clutter stuff up, don't they? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, Sergio, you had a high school teacher yourself who took you to writing competitions and, you know, he pushed you to grow as a writer. How do these influences, whether a mentor or something like the Bingham Academy, how do all those things shape future writers? Well, you know, I had Pearl Crouch. Uh, mm-hmm. She was a tremendous teacher and a friend of Mr. Clemens. And she, what she was doing at Isleta High School in this high school right about a half a mile from the border, I don't know. Um, she was a tough lady who expected uh, so much from me. I would turn in um, essays or, or articles for the newspaper, and she would give them back to me and said, this is not good enough for you. You can rewrite them. And I also wanted to turn the newspaper into a real paper, mm-hmm. not just write about pep rally announcements and the sort of official kind of propaganda piece. I actually started writing in the newspaper 
uh, about um, you know sex and drugs in the new, in in school. About uh, one of the stories I wrote about was uh, an illegal immigrant that had gotten beat up uh, behind their high school, mm-hmm. and the that officer eventually ended up being fired. But what happened is when I started writing these real articles in the newspaper as a high schooler, um, people wanted to read the paper. The paper became something real, a, a, a reportage of what was going on in the high school and not, not a propaganda piece. And mm-hmm. Pearl Crouch always wanted that kind of real newspaper for high schoolers. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember once uh, I wrote an article on... Um, on, on some a little bit of embezzlement that mm-hmm. had happened where the, the student council had gotten um, money from car washes and, and cupcake sales and all of that for, for a trip, mm-hmm. and the money was missing. Mm-hmm. And apparently a secretary had absconded with the money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I wrote about it, of course. I didn't name names, but I said, this happened. The money, the money is missing. And the principal of, of Isleta High School came in and said, you know, what do you think you're doing? You know, you're printing this. And Pearl Crouch defended me. said, just name anywhere on this newspaper article, name anything that's false. Hmm. And every fact was true. And he said, what the problem is you just don't like that my editor wrote about it. Mm-hmm. And he said, why don't you go take care of your office and the people who are taking the students' money rather than coming to criticize my editor? And so wow. it exactly wow. wow. And yeah. and so I learned that you write about real things, you write about what matters, you don't write about the yeah. prettified things because that's what people care about. And of course I won state awards and suddenly people started as a high school kid started um, paying attention to my writing. Ashton, is Sergio pushing you as hard as his mentor used to push him? Um, I'm not sure about that. I remember last <laughs> year um, we talked about one of my pieces that I did, and um, there are so many grammatical errors there. Oh, my gosh. And that was frustrating because I looked at it beforehand, and I'm like, oh, this this looks fine. And then after our conversation, I've I'm been like, there this before. is terrible. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, no, but Ashton is there. a very good writer, I have mm-hmm. to say. No, and, and you know, it's, nobody's ever perfect. You, you always can improve. You know, it strikes me that making art, you know, especially writing, is very much a solitary exercise. But community is a big theme here, Sergio. What is the significance of building a community of artists, whether at the Bingham Academy or or anywhere else for that matter? We were just talking about that today in class. And I told the the high school kids at the the George Caleb Bingham Academy, I said, what you want to do after the summer is link with each other. And here's the writing exercise that you can continue every month and uh, a thousand-word piece with a prompt. You choose a noun, and somebody chooses a noun, and you start building a community of people comparing each other's work. And that's important. Why? Because you don't feel alone. Mm-hmm. You're writing alone, yet after a certain amount of time, you're actually sharing the work and comparing how you can do better. And you also get a little sense of fun competition. You start comparing these thousand-word pieces. And it's like, as I told them, lifting weights for writers. And then whoever wins that competition at the end of the month gets to choose the next prompt. And I do it with writers at my level all the time. Mm -hmm. And you you create a community of people interested in writing, interested in experimenting with writing, and you you create your own built-in audience. When you have that group of friends waiting for your piece, you get it done. Ashton, do you guys think you'll do that going forward, leaving the academy? 
Uh, Sergio actually presented that idea to us last year, and uh, I was per- part of the uh, George Caleb Bingham Academy last year as well. And um, he presented us with that idea, and uh, we made a Facebook group of uh, everyone that was in the class, and we did do that throughout mm-hmm. the year, and uh, it was it was very fun. It was very very interesting. Ashton, can you see yourself teaching someday? That's actually what I want to do. Uh, Sergio and I were talking about uh, where I'm going uh, since I've graduated, and I'm where are you going? Blue River, actually, which is where the... Uh, the community college. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. And that's actually where the um, program is held. And uh, so I'm going down to Blue River and then on to U- UCM. Sorry. And uh, yeah, and UCM to... Uh, University of Central Missouri. Yes. Down in Warrensburg, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, good for and, you. And uh, I'm going to hope to major in um, English education. So... Oh, there or, you go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, now, the writing side of the academy culminates in a literary journal... Do you know who's going to be contributing to that yet? Is that where, where does that stand? Well, you know, Ashton is the editor is of the journal this mm-hmm. year, so I'm, I'm sure he can Who? give us what's happening. How's that shaping up? Uh, it's turning out pretty well. Um, so every year, GCB uh, George Caleb Bingham Academy has uh, a theme that we cr- try to um, revolve the program around: uh, the plays, um, the music, the art pieces, and especially our writing. And um, so this year, the theme is 100 years ago, and um, as some people know um, 100 years ago, World War One started. And so we're really, we're not focusing yeah. strictly on the war, but we're, I mean, we kind of are. But um, we're looking at the time period between 1914 to the early 20s. And uh, we're just looking at the heart of the time back then and what it was like and what, um, uh, what people were facing out in the trenches and what the home front was like. And uh, we're putting it all in a magazine. And we've got uh, original artwork by the art students and... Uh, we went and visited the uh, National World War One Museum, and that was a lot of fun, and so it's all coming together. You strike me as a young man who doesn't let a whole lot get in his way. Am, am I seeing that right? I think you are, sir. Yeah, yes. I, think, <laughs> I think I'm seeing that right. We're visiting this morning, if you're just joining us, with author Sergio Troncoso and uh, one of his students, Ashton uh, Harris, who are taking part at the Bingham Academy, an independence of a writing program there this summer. You know, um, you, you talk, Sergio, in a lot of your work about the immigrant value of hard work. How does that connect to what you're doing in independence? How does that connect to the writing you do all the time? Well, you know, I, I teach uh, my young writers like Ashton that to get a book done, it takes sacrifice beyond what you can imagine. Yeah, it I takes can, working I get that. at 1 in the morning, at 2 in the morning. It works Saturdays and Sundays. There is no... 40-hour kind yeah. of job. Right, right. And, and it takes that focus and that discipline when other people may not be working. You should be working to produce another work. Don't wait for an essay or a story to get published. Produce another one as, mm-hmm. you're, as, you're, as you're finishing one of them. Yeah, how does the immigrant experience relate to that, that hard well, work? you know, I mean, I, I grew up, um, you know, with, with very little, and my parents said there's no tired in my house. I was doing construction work after... Uh, Every every day after I finished um, grade school and in high school as well, and every summer I worked, and it taught me that value of focus, of stamina, mm-hmm. of just working beyond exhaustion, and and I think that kind of values of of that hard work and focus um, that I learned from my parents, I've tried to translate to my own kids in New York City. And I, uh, you know, they call me the toughest dad on the Upper West Side. And when they didn't have homework, I gave them homework. Oh, really? When in the <laughs> summer, when their friends were messing around and and just uh, doing nothing, they either took extra classes, or they 
um, you know, they did some of the homework and math homework that I would that I would create for them, mm-hmm. and they worked very hard. and And I have a kid at Yale, and Aaron, for example, you know, scored a twenty four hundred on his SAT. Wow! It wasn't magic. Mm-hmm. It was they learned to work hard, and I I'm telling them that the values of New York City kids and could be some kids in Min- in Missouri, but I know New York better. They're a little soft. They don't know how to work really, really hard. Mm-hmm. And and I've tried to teach those immigrant values I learned in Isleta and on the border from my parents who began with nothing and, and slowly rose up with this backbreaking work in New York City with kids who have much more than, than I ever did. Yeah. And and I think, you know, same thing with Mike. I have an old younger son, Isaac, that is a you know, a little bit younger than than Ashton. Same thing. You know, teach them that focus and that drive. And and it and I tell I tell them I don't you don't want to be a writer, you want to do something else. That's fine, but I want you to be the best, mm-hmm. and I want you to be excellent. And how you get to be excellent is by doing more than the next person mm-hmm. here. And um, and that's what I try to teach them. Now I want to ask you about uh, some of your recent work because you were the co-editor of a book. Our Lost Border, Essays on Life Amid the Narco-Violence that came out last year. In the introduction to the book, you wrote this, and you're speaking of the border, uh, Sergio. What the recent drug violence has uh, undermined and even destroyed is this constant dialogue between people, as well as their creation of a borderland easily navigable by those creative and intrepid enough to live in this in-between. You mean what exactly when you talk about this in-between? Well... For example, when I grew up in Isleta in El Paso, every every week we would go have dinner in Mexico. Mexico, Juarez, and El Paso are so close you can go to lunch in one city and come back um, before mm-hmm. you know you know but before you have to. Um, and we had cousins on both sides, we had family on both sides, and it teaches you that there's another country right next to you, and it's really one city divided by a small river. The Rio Grande is not so grande. Mm-hmm. It's actually quite small, mm-hmm. like a little canal. And this bicultural, bilingual, uh, binational life ended after 2008, after the drug violence really skyrocketed. And my parents who grew up in Juarez stopped going to Juarez. It was too dangerous. El Paso is very safe. But Juarez was not. Juarez was worse than probably one of the worst places in Syria, and and it, I think it 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 um, it really um, rent this community in two in a way that it hadn't been before. It used and to be one, and it then used it, to it, be it really one. Became two distinct cities. Exactly. Yeah. And and you know the border wall also was being created, and so I wanted to write about this life that had existed before two thousand eight. This going back and forth, this these people who would switch from Spanish to English and back, and and people who lived in between two cultures, mm-hmm. two nations, even two languages, and became perfectly bilingual, just like I did, and um, and what was lost, and really what we hope to get back, now that the violence is is ebbing, and uh, and people are starting to go back to to Juarez. Is but, the violence ebbing? Yeah. I think at 2010, I think, was the apex of mm-hmm. the violence. There used to be, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, something like 3,000 murders in Juarez in one year. And now we're down to four or 500, I think. Mm. Um, it's still a lot. It's still as much as New York City, whereas Juarez is a fraction of the size, about a million and a half, 
New York City is about eight million, but it's uh, much better than it was before. And El Paso, which just to give you a, a sense, has eight hundred thousand people and has twenty, thirty murders a year. It's usually the the least violent city in the country, other than San Jose. Really? Yeah. Did so the, it that. never yeah. crosses over the border. There's a, a big military presence on the, in El Paso. Mm-hmm. Fort Bliss um, has tens of thousands of soldiers, and it just never crossed the, the border. The violence is ebbing. Why? Maybe they killed too many people. Maybe it's exhaustion. Uh, I think the, the government, the New Mexican government, has stopped the, the drug war, this outlaw drug, drug war that began the violence. Um, it could be they're making these accommodations that they used to make before, which is just don't kill people and allow the drug flow to, to you know to go through, and and you know the the other reality is we in the United States bear some responsibility for this war, you know about in, in the sense that three quarters of the drugs purchased from the cartels are purchased in the United States, in places like Yale and Harvard and University of Missouri and so many other places, mm-hmm. so. They're fighting for our money, for the billions that that we give them by purchasing these drugs. And I tell my kids that, by the way. I'm very blunt. I said, if you if you do drugs, you're helping to kill Mexicans. Mm-hmm. You know, and for them it's very personal because it's not an abstraction. It's it's their family. It's their grandparents. You talk about these two cultures in El Paso and Juarez. There's also, you write, essentially a third culture that's developed along the border. How so? It's um, this culture that is not allied to Mexico City and not necessarily allied to Washington, D.C. It's this culture of um, people like my best friend Jeff Jenkins, uh, blonde and blue-eyed, who's perfectly bilingual and has a Mexican girlfriend. And and that's typical in the El Paso and Juarez area. In Juarez, they're listening to the Dallas Cowboys. They're Mexican. They love American culture, yet they're Mexican, and they know English very well. Yeah, on the other side, in El Paso, people who don't think as Latinos or, or Mexicans as some other that they hate, but no, they're my brother, they're my cousin, uh, I intermarried, and that's normal. And so you create this third culture uh, of people going yeah. in between, people yeah. who, who are not uh, seeing this, uh, you know, this... Um, this, this other group as, as separate from them. And, and it bu- bugs as much, you know, Washington, D.C., as it bugs Mexico City mm-hmm. because the Mexicans along the border are seen as very Americanized yeah. from Mexico City's eyes. And then the Americans on the Mexican border are seen as a little bit too Mexicanized by the interior parts of the U.S., uh, author um, uh, Jorge Troncoso is our guest. You know, you write in this book, Our Lost Border, uh, the level of violence along the border, so much of it is just absolutely breathtaking. In one essay by Jose Skinner, he writes of a woman in Jasmine's hair salon who who's waiting to get her hair done, complains about organized crime. And then she says, I wish a guerrilla army would rise up and kill all the mafiosos. And a man who's in the chair at the time getting a haircut hears this, waits until his haircut is finished, then stands up, pulls out a handgun, and orders the barber to cut off all the woman's hair who made the remark, or he said he's going to kill her. Just amazing. It is. I mean, and it's it's shocking to see this kind of violence um, along the border. And, you know, I, I, I hope, that, you know, we've turned the corner. 
and it's changed. It sounds um, like you're you're confident that we have. I think so. I mean, I, I it's only because nobody wants it. Nobody can live like that. Yeah. When when you're when the society is so violent, you know, even the poor people cannot have peace. Even um, the you know on both sides of the border, they simply there's no winners, and and it just creates a, a an awful society that people are trying to get away from. Uh, Jose Skinner also writes about uh, of the story of a grandfather who's kidnapped for ransom. The grandfather's family pitches in to save him, but that's not enough. So the bad guys demand titles and deeds uh, of the grandfather's land, which he's so proud of, which the man has to fork over. And, and there's also a sense of robberies never being reported because the police won't do anything anyway. It sounds absolutely, you know, crazed. <laughs> It, it, it is, and, and, you just, and you just can't believe as you read some of these things, right? And and and, and the and the the issue that maybe people here in the Midwest might not appreciate is that a lowly uh, Mexican cop earning twenty thousand dollars a year is yeah. easily bought off, and they will say, you "Say you're earning twenty, I'll give you forty thousand in cash to look the other way, or I kill you." So what what, what do you think you're going to do? <laughs> yeah, well, given given those choices, where <laughs> right. are you going here? Right, yeah. and 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 by the way. FBI agents on the U.S. side have been corrupted, mm-hmm. you know, and a couple of were prosecuted. So if they can corrupt FBI, FBI agents, agents, you know, think of a guy earning $15,000, you know, in a little town in Chihuahua. And so it, it's billions sloshing around the border. And, uh, and that's the kind of money that they have. Now, in this book, Our Lost Border, you write an essay titled A World Between Two Worlds. And you talk about growing up in these two worlds of El Paso and Juarez on the Mexico side. I wonder if you would describe the barbershop, Los Hermanos Mesa in Juarez, and why that place was important to you. Because this barbershop represented the best of the border. And then I wonder if you would describe something else entirely. And that's the story of Chavita and Cafe Miro. Okay. Well, um, the, this barbershop, Los Hermanos... I love the way you describe this place, by the way. It, just, it was just great. <laughs> yeah, Los Hermanos Mesa was where I got my haircut as a, as a grade schooler yeah. for, for decade. Well, for about a decade. My father's favorite place. It, it, was it had in been Juarez, there for four generations, I for think. For four generations. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And my father loved going back uh, to get his haircut there. Everybody knew him. Whereas in El Paso, he felt a little bit out of place. You know, he didn't, he didn't fit in. When he went back to this barbershop in, in Juarez, Mexico, uh, everyone greeted him by name, and he was very happy to be there. And people were very respectful of him. And uh, I remember Nati, the chief barber, would always get down on one knee when we would walk in. We were kids, and he would talk to us eye to eye. You know, a very focused— And shake your hand. And shake our, shake our hand. Very mm-hmm. sort of genteel, almost old-world, 1950s yeah. kind of uh, view. And I loved this barbershop. And you it, always wanted him to cut your hair, too. Exactly, because mm-hmm. he would talk to you mm-hmm. rather than, you know, make fun of you or, or kind of, you know, trick you. He had an older brother who was a big trickster. And, uh, and so I always wanted Nati because Nati was serious, and I like having serious discussions with Nati. Yeah. And, and so the, the milieu of this barbershop just um, had so much. Uh, it taught me so much about Mexico or what Mexico could be. In, in the best form. Um, and, uh, and that's why my father loved going there because he really felt like this is where he belonged in this barbershop with these people who respected him and understood him. 
and, and gave him the same level of respect that, that he gave others. That's such a great memory. Yeah, it, it is. It, 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 you, it, you compared the barbershop to uh, the bar in Ernest Hemingway's A Clean, Well-Lighted Place. So, am I recalling yeah, that correctly? Absolutely. No, I you, thought it was a great analogy there. Great, you know? great memory. But it's a yeah. place where you feel warm inside, where yeah. you know you belong, where you yeah. can stay as long as you want. And it's more than just a barbershop. It's a place where you just fit. Yeah. And the sun is coming through, and you're waiting for your hair to get cut. And and you just uh, feel almost like a, a cleansing. And mm-hmm. it's just a haircut, really. You know, but uh, it was a great place. And, and my my cousin, Chavita. Chavita and Kathy Miro. And that story is also on the on the opposite end of the scale here. Yeah. yeah. He, Chavita was his cousin, and that's a true story in, in this collection. He had come from Guadalajara. And and he located himself in Juarez, and he was this guy, this cousin of mine, who lived on both sides. He had a a, a business in El Paso, and and then he would also opened up a, a bar called Cafe Miro in Juarez, and he would have a truck. He would drive, do his work in Cafe Miro at night. Then he would uh, come on a bike, and put it in the back of the truck, and cross over the border and then get in another truck and go to his business in El Paso. And all the, all the border agents knew him. He, had, he was an American citizen. He did that because the lines would get so long. Exactly. And so he could walk. Crossing. He, he, he could, he could he expedite could, it. Yeah. Exactly. He could walk faster across the bridge than, than to drive through. So he was doing this every day, literally crossing the border every day. And that was typical of El Paso Juarez before 2008. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so what happened, of course, after 2008 is that uh, he, he also started uh, these music festivals. A huge music festival started first with three, 4,000 people. He wanted to, to bring music to, to Juarez, and, and he brought in bands that the young Juarez teenagers would love. And, um, and then suddenly the narcos knew that they had uh, a way to distribute drugs. They approached him at Café Miro, and they... And they um, talk to the manager there, and I have a scene where I talk about yeah. how they talk to the manager, and, and this guy he'd never have seen before says, give this to the owner, and it described what they wanted him to do, how much money they would pay him for security services. Mm-hmm. He had no choice but to pay them, and and then they also said, this is these are how much drugs you're going to sell at these music festivals you've created. And Chavita said, you know, I'm not going to do this. He first called him and he argued again. He, t- he told him, you know, who the heck are you yeah. telling me what to do? And then they said, well, if you don't do what, you know, we know where you bank. We know where you live. Yeah, that was just. We know, we, we know where you are. Him. Exactly. Yeah. And if so if you don't do it, we'll just, we're going to kill you. And his and reaction was in, in, heart I think stopping. In, right. In about 48 hours or so, I think it was three, two days or, or, or so, he closed Café Miro. Fired all the staff. He, he fired all the staff. He put everything in a warehouse, and he left from Juarez to El Paso. And, and all of the, 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 the entrepreneurship, the, the, uh, the festivals, all of, all of what he had created over the years stopped because he said, I, I had two kids. They're under 10 years old. And if and I that's, stayed, what, that's what mattered. I had, a, I had no choice but really to look that way. Right, and, mm-hmm. and leave because I didn't want my family harmed. Mm-hmm. And so I think that kind of human capital and the ingenuity of what he was doing was all lost. And, and I think he's, I, I talked to him recently, and I think he's thinking of going back. So in my mind, he thinks it's safe enough to perhaps try again. So our story is ending on something of a happy note here, that it sounds like 
Juarez is becoming a more inhabitable place, a more right. uh, civilized place, and life may be continuing in a more uh, in a better way. We hope so. I mean, I, I think it is definitely improving, and um, and it, you know, it, it, you cannot uh, you stifle creativity and you kill so many dreams when you have this kind of violence. Yeah. And I think that's what you saw in Juarez. Sergio Troncoso's uh, latest book, Our Lost Border Essays on Life Amid the Narco Violence. I want to thank him for coming in today, as well as Ashton Harris, a student at the Bingham Academy, just wrapping up out in Independence. Thank you both for coming in. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you very much for having us. Thank you.